This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, this morning, we're going to close out this uh, three-part section here in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus confronts our motivation behind our obedience, the why behind the what when we give, when we pray, and as we're going to see this morning, when you fast. That's the title of our sermon this morning, when you fast. And fasting, I think, for many of us, is kind of this enigma, isn't it? It's this mysterious, forgotten spiritual practice that, if we're honest, feels almost foreign to many of us. And the more that I read about fasting this week, the more that I came to see in in my own mind, in my own heart, the misconceptions I had, and I think that many of us had, and how much uh, we misunderstand what fasting is at least in the way Scripture defines it and in the way Scripture uh, describes it. And and I don't know if in our 12-year history as a church if we've ever talked about fasting. And so there's so much that we could say given this being our first time talking about it. But I think what we're going to do instead, uh, have you guys ever heard of the great Dr. Leo Marvin by any chance? Very well-known doctor from the 19, uh, I think it was 80s, late 80s, early 90s. And uh, he wrote a book uh, with his theory called Baby Steps. Remember that one about Bob? Come on, guys. Give me, give me at least a sympathy laugh. Yeah, there we go. You're good at that. We're going to take some baby steps this morning. So we're not going to talk about everything there is to say about fasting. We're going to talk about some of the important things about fasting as we continue to live out the way of Jesus by, learning, by listening to the words of Jesus when we fast. And so if you haven't already, let's go ahead and let's take out our Bibles and let's flip in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 16 through 18 this morning. And our big idea is this. If you're taking notes, go ahead and write this down. Our big idea this morning is going to be kind of our working definition of fasting. And it's this. It's that fasting is a response to sin and suffering that fosters greater love for God and others. Right? Fasting is a response to sin and suffering that fosters greater love for both God and others. And what I think we're going to see this morning is that, as with the other spiritual practices, fasting is simply a living out of the great commandment to love. And so this morning, Jesus, he's going to confront our self-centered motivation for fasting, and then he's going to provide a a proper motivation for fasting as we begin to see and have a better understanding of what fasting is. And so again, first, as we have these past few weeks, Jesus, he's going to confront our self-centered motivation for fasting. And Jesus, he says in verse 16, he says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. And truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And I think before we can begin to truly misunderstand the uh, self-centered motivation for fasting that Jesus is confronting, we need to, we need to go back a few steps, and, and, and I want to make sure that we have a proper understanding of what the spiritual discipline of fasting is. And so as we've done a few times throughout the Sermon on the Mount, I want us to see uh, what we know to be clear and certain in Scripture regarding fasting. Sound good? We're going to start back there with some fundamentals, if you will. And so the first thing we see right out of the gate, what Jesus tells us here is this. It's that fasting is a regular rhythm in the lives of those who faithfully follow Jesus. Right? Fasting is and continues to be a regular rhythm in the lives of those who faithfully follow Jesus. And now what some are going to do is some are going to point to Paul's epistles in the New Testament and say, uh, Paul never explicitly commanded us to fast. 
Therefore, uh, fasting is an Old Testament. It is a Jewish custom that didn't continue with the church. Others might say that fasting is something that only the Catholic Church does, and even then during Lent in preparation for Easter. And so as, as Protestants, we, we tend to just avoid fasting altogether, don't we? But Jesus, he undoes that misunderstanding in four words here. And, right, and not only when you give, not only when you pray, but also when you fast. Not if, but when. When you fast. And in a couple more chapters, in chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples, they're going to be confronted for not fasting, actually. And Jesus responds to this in in chapter 9, verse 15, saying that this fast from the fast, if you will, was only temporary. And that soon he would be leaving. And that when he left, quote, then they will fast in that day. And Jesus is saying that once again, his followers are going to return to fasting being a a regular rhythm in their lives. And so what I want us to see here in this first thing is that fasting is not something for another time or another faith tradition, but something that we incorporate into our walk with Jesus. It is a regular rhythm in the lives of those who faithfully follow Jesus. The second thing is that if we are called to fast, what exactly is a fast? What is fasting? And and when we look at the entirety of Scripture, what we begin to see is this. It's that fasting is a temporary and voluntary decision to abstain from food and possibly water for a period of time. Fasting is a temporary and voluntary decision to abstain from food for a period of time. And right now, I think you're like, ooh, but what about? We 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 are good at the whatabouts, aren't we? See, I think we've expanded the definition of fasting beyond God's definition. There are many things that we can abstain from, uh, social media and Netflix, uh, alcohol, certain foods, and and Scripture talks about abstaining from other things. It talks about in 1 Corinthians 7 uh, of a husband and wife temporarily abstaining from sex for a period of time uh, to focus on prayer. Daniel temporarily abstained from delicacies, it says, uh, not eating meat or drinking wine for a period of time. But these other forms of abstaining are not referred to as fasting. And that doesn't mean there's no value in temporarily and and voluntarily abstaining from these other things. Uh, Here, as an example, uh, we're going to take a a three-week vacation this summer, and when I take time off, I do my best to uh, log off and disconnect uh, and, and abstain from social media on vacation. And it's this idea of removing one thing in order to focus on another. Removing the yuckiness of Twitter, which I don't know why we keep going back to that bird app, but we do, uh, removing that to focus on like just having fun with my family and resting, which Twitter never offers rest, amen? Ever. It only gets you riled up. But, that, but that's not a fast, at least the way God describes and defines it. And I think how we use and how we define words is very important. And so when Scripture uses a word a specific way, I think we should define a word in the same way. Does that make sense? And so while you can abstain from many things, Scripture defines fasting as abstaining from a specific thing. And I think what we're going to see this morning is that there's something unique about abstaining from food. 
But as I mentioned, the period of time, it may vary. And so the third thing that we're going to see here is that fasting does not have a specified duration. Right? There's no specified duration. I think we typically think of, uh, of fasting in the Bible, we think of those extreme fasts, right? We think of the 40-day fast. Moses, he did it a handful of times atop Mount Sinai. The prophet Elijah fasted 40 days in 1 Kings 19. And if you remember back in Matthew 4, Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. But that's something that only happened a handful of times in all of Scripture. And so that should not be viewed as normative or expected, but as the exception. Instead, when we look at Jewish custom, uh, the typical Jewish fast lasted from uh, dinner at the end of the day, the beginning of their day, through dinner the next day, fasting from breakfast and lunch. And just as Jesus, though, just as Jesus, you remember, he did not define a specific amount to give two weeks ago, did he? No, instead he said it should be secret and sacrificial. Last week, Jesus did not define the length of time to pray, simply that it should be private and intimate. And in the same way, he gives us no set duration to fast. And I think that's important to see because we, are, we easily become like the Pharisees, don't we? We are lovers of the law. We like to know when what we are doing is good enough. Look at what I did. And Jesus doesn't give us any of that. And if we're honest, I think that frustrates us a little bit, doesn't it? We wish he would have just given us a formula to plug into the spreadsheet to say how much we're supposed to give to be good. We, we, we wish we could just say, like, if I say these words over and over and over in a prayer, I'm good. But he doesn't. I think it's important to see that the bigger the financial gift doesn't necessarily mean it's a more sacrificial gift. And the longer you pray, it doesn't necessarily mean it is a more intimate conversation with God. And the longer you fast, it doesn't necessarily mean it is more spiritual. And so to recap here in these first three, who fasts? Followers of Jesus. What is a fast? It is abstaining from food. And how long do we fast? It varies. But that leads to the fourth point, which is why. Right? Why do we fast? And this is the one where I think we really get fasting backwards. We, we often think of fasting in order for something to happen, don't we? Like so that something will happen, hoping for a result from our fasting. Fasting so that God will do something. Fasting so that God will reveal something to us. And yet, everything we know about the gospel, everything we know about faithfully following the way of Jesus is never so that it is always because of. Does that make sense? It is never so that it is always because of. We live in response. And the same is true of fasting. We fast in response to something that has happened, not so that something will happen. It's a definition that New Testament professor uh, Dr. Scott McKnight gives in his book on fasting, a book that I would highly recommend if you have more questions on fasting. Uh, to be honest, I'd recommend anything Dr. McKnight wrote. Um, but in here, he defines fasting as this. This is the fourth thing I want us to see. It's that fasting is the natural, inevitable response of a person to a grievous sacred moment in life. Response is that key word. Fasting is the natural and inevitable response of a person to a grievous sacred moment in life. And by grievous and sacred, he's referring here to those significant offense like uh, the death of a loved one. When you are just, you're stricken with grief. Or a national disaster, 
Uh, I think we were all stricken with grief as we watched the events unfold on, on 9-11. When you live in, in, in the southeast, you are overcome as you see the hurricane coming and the devastation that it does. Uh, the pandemic has been a grievous and sacred event. War. And, and not just those one-time events, but ongoing things like the violence that exists. The injustice of poverty and hunger, right? This suffering that we experience as a result of the presence of sin in our broken and fallen world, our broken bodies, and our sinful hearts. And as we fast, we grieve the very things that God grieves. Dr. McKnight goes on to say that fasting in response to sin and suffering is, quote, it enables us to identify with how God views a given event and empowers us to empathize with God. And that's what we see in Ezra chapter 10, right? After the exile, Israel, the Israelites have, have moved home from Babylon, and, and Ezra, after returning, it says in chapter 10 that, that he mourned over the faithlessness of the exiles. He mourned their sin just as God mourned their sin. And he mourned their sin, the text says, by withdrawing and by fasting. He responded to the sin. And that depth of grief. It is inevitable. And that makes fasting more natural in those moments than I think we realize. We simply lose our appetite, don't we? Presbyterian minister Lynn Babb says in her book on fasting that when we are deeply absorbed in grief, when it is so overwhelming and overcoming, habitual activities and normal pleasures feel inappropriate and out of place. And that includes eating. And so we respond, and we respond in two ways that I want us to see. We respond with reactive, spontaneous fasts, but we also respond with proactive, scheduled fasts. And so the fifth thing I want us to see is that spontaneous fasts are a reactive response to sin and suffering. Right? These spontaneous, spur-of-the-moment fasts, they are a reactive response to sin and suffering. We see examples of this throughout Scripture, most often in, in response to sin, as part of repenting and returning to God, a full-bodied return to God. God himself, he says in Joel 2.12, he says to Israel, return to me with all your heart. Return to me with your entire being, body and soul. And return to me, he says, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. We see this also in, in Jonah chapter 3. After this big fish spit Jonah back out on the beach, side note, did you all see... A guy got swallowed by a whale this week. A lobster diver found himself in the mouth of a, of a whale for like 30 seconds. I had this illustration penned before that, I promise you that. But after the fish bit Jonah back out, he, he finally went to Nineveh. He did what God had been calling him to do. And he, he went throughout the city preaching a, a one-sentence sermon. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Can we be honest? That's not the greatest sermon you've ever heard, is it? If I was able to deliver the sermon in its entirety in my sermon, I don't know. I got intros that are longer than that. You know, we got like Peter. You got Peter on Pentecost in Acts 2, like the greatest sermon ever preached. And then you got Jonah, chapter 3 in Nineveh. Not the greatest sermon ever preached. But here's what, here's what as a preacher, what is both humbling and encouraging. The Holy Spirit moved in both of those sermons, didn't he? 
It wasn't the words of the man. It was God moving in the midst of them. And what, what it says is, is that the people of Nineveh believed in God. In light of that sermon, he brought an entire city to God. They, and they responded to their sin, the text says, by repenting. All of Nineveh responded to their sin by repenting. But, but, but fasting, or by fasting, fasting is not just a response to sin. It's also a response to suffering. And we see this with a woman named Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. Hannah responded to uh, years of infertility, years of, uh, of her inability to have a child, and she responded by fasting. She wept and would not eat. But as you read 1 Samuel 1, it's important to see she did not fast so that God would give her a child. No, she fasted because of the grief she was experiencing in that season of life. Her fasting was a response. My first experience with fasting was actually modeled after that very passage. Uh, for those not familiar with uh, our story, uh, my wife Jill and I, we lost our first child. And after years of God answering our prayers for children with a, with a no, I, uh, it was recommended by a friend of mine to just take a day off work. I was working at Motorola at the time, and so I took a day off work, and I spent the day uh, fasting in the forest preserve out by our house in Crystal Lake. Uh, I walked the trails, I read scripture, I prayed to God, I cried out to God, I yelled at God, I cursed at God. I got it all out. It was a truly grievous response to a season of suffering that we were living in. Five long years. And what was interesting is I didn't know what to expect. I had no expectations. I went as a response, and there in, in that weakened state, weakened emotionally from the years of waiting, weakened spiritually, weakened physically, as I responded, I had what is one of the two most intimate encounters with God I have ever experienced in my life there in that forest preserve. And at the end of the day, God made the way forward very clear to us. That's another story. That's not always how your day of fasting ends. But what I, I say that because fasting is a response, and sometimes we just spontaneously respond to the sin and the suffering in our lives and in our world. And number six, what I want us to see is not only when we look at Scripture did Israel respond reactively, but God also called them to respond proactively. And what we see is that scheduled fasts, you put it in your calendar, scheduled fasts are a proactive response to sin and suffering. Right? It's a proactive response. Israel responded every year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, just as God prescribed in Leviticus 16 and 23, by corporately responding together to the, the sin of the community in preparation for the sacrifice by fasting. They knew this was coming every year, the set-aside day to respond to sin. And, and as time went on, we, we see after the exile that uh, fasting became a weekly rhythm in Jewish custom, fasting twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. And fasting didn't end at the end of Malachi, before we jump into Matthew, it, it continued. And the spiritual practice of fasting continues because the purpose of the practice continues. Right? We continue to respond by fasting. We see this in the book of Acts. 
The church continued to respond to sacred moments by spontaneously fasting. Uh, Acts 9 is the, the story of Paul responding to this encounter that he had with Jesus on the Damascus Road, and he responds to giving his life to Christ by fasting for three days. Acts 13, the church in Antioch fasted in response to their need for missionaries. They didn't respond, or they didn't fast in order to get missionaries. They fasted in response to the need. Acts 14, as Paul planted churches, it says that they fasted in response to their need for elders. The Didache, a first century church document, it called for a person who was being baptized as well as the person performing the baptism to fast in response to their sin and repentance for one to two days leading up to the baptism. But not just that, the Didache also shows that it prescribed proactive scheduled fasting for the early church in the first couple of centuries, fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays. They, they chose different days from the Jewish custom of fasting. And this practice continued for centuries in parts of Christendom. Uh, John Wesley, he, he wrote about Methodists in 18th century England that were fasting every Wednesday and Friday. He says, quote, in imitation of the primitive church, for which they had the highest reverence, the highest regard. And now, just over 200 years later, this spiritual practice of fasting has become foreign to us because it has become forgotten by us. And my prayer is that we would remember, that we would reclaim the spiritual practice of fasting, making it a more regular rhythm in our lives as we faithfully follow the way of Jesus, responding to the sin and suffering in our lives and in our world. But I, I think also we need a point of clarification here. It's that fasting should never be forced on others. Right? Fasting should never be forced on others, especially, think of this, especially our little kids downstairs. Um, I don't know about you, but the, like, my boys get hangry after like a half hour of not eating. Um, we shouldn't be forcing fasting on kids. Their bodies are growing and developing. We shouldn't force fasting on the elderly who need those nutrients. We should not force fasting on those who are in poor health and especially anyone who might be struggling with an eating disorder. Fasting should never be forced. We should never shame someone into a spiritual practice. Amen? And with that understanding of what it is and why it is and how it is, let's go back and let's look at verse 16 again. I think we need that rest of Scripture uh, in our foundation to read this verse. So 16 again, he says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. And truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And once again, as he's done the past couple of weeks, Jesus, he, he confronts and he calls out the hypocrites. I remember that, that Greek word, it means a theatrical actor. And he's confronting them and calling them out, not for what they did, but for why they did what they did. He's confronting their motive. They were actually fasting. They weren't lying about it, but they were fasting for the wrong reason. They were fasting to be seen by others. Um, this is the vulnerable part of the sermon where I express my uh, past as a theater geek. Uh, okay, there's at least one of you in here, then good. I was a theater geek, and uh, in theater, you, like, clearly my face is not typically that disfigured, uh, but you, you put on makeup, and in theater, you, you overdo your makeup on purpose, right, to call out certain features, and when the house lights are up before the show starts, like, the makeup looks weird, doesn't it? 
But when the house lights go down and the theater lights go up, it draws attention to those features that you want accentuated. And that's exactly what they were doing. As they fasted, they intentionally disfigured their faces, accentuating the visible and physical effects of fasting. Not in order to be seen by God, but in order to be seen by others. Right? They became their own theatrical performance. They were hypocrites. They had turned this private spiritual practice into a public spectacle for their own self-promotion so that they would look more spiritual, more holy, more righteous. Look at me. And I wonder if we're guilty of doing the exact same thing, of displaying our spirituality in front of others so that it may be seen by others. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but it's, it's often driven by insecurity and, and, and finding our approval, our identity in others and how they see us and how they think about us. And so we fast. And we fast without even knowing what a fast is or why to fast or how to fast. We, we, we fast for results. We, we fast so that others might think us more spiritual. And, and, and fasting being so foreign, I think another way in which we do this is with our church clothes. Right? I, was raised, um, I was raised to believe that wearing your Sunday best to church was almost this visible indication uh, of your faith and spirituality. And the story I remember being told was, would you dress up if you went to see the president? Duh. Is God more important than the president? Duh. Well then, I don't even need to say the third part. Put on that tie. But we, we, we're, we believe, we buy into this thing that, that, that somehow the person wearing the suit and tie to church on Sunday, that that person somehow loves Jesus more than the guy in ripped jeans and flip-flops and a hat on backwards. And like, I miss that in Scripture. In fact, I'm pretty sure Jesus wore flip-flops, amen? I'm just saying. See, Jesus, he's confronting our elevating of the method over the motive. He's confronting the why behind the what. And Jesus responds to these hypocrites saying, they have received their reward. If all you want is to be seen by others, you've been seen. You got what you wanted. You wanted nothing more. You will get nothing more. You receive the applause and admiration they so desperately desire. But we not only use fasting as a way to manipulate what others think of us, I think we also use fasting as a way to manipulate what God will do for us. Don't we? We, in a sense, uh, weaponize the spiritual practice of fasting. We, we turn it into an instrument that we wield against God to get whatever it is that we want from God. Thinking that because of your fast, God now somehow owes you something. He is now in your debt. And when we use fasting as a tool to manipulate God, God sees what we have done. He sees into our heart. He knows our motives. And I think he asks us the very same question he asked Israel in Zechariah 7.5. After their years of self-centered fasting, he asked them, was it for me that you fasted? Was it really for me or was it for you? Be honest, because I already know the answer, God says. We don't fast in hopes of a response. We fast as a response to the sin and suffering that exists in our lives and in the world. 
And after confronting our self-centered motives, Jesus, he goes on to provide the proper motivation for fasting. He provides the proper motivation here in verses 17 and 18. Look down here with me. He says, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is saying that when you, when my followers, my disciples, when you continue this spiritual practice and discipline, discipline of fasting, making it a regular rhythm in your life, not as a public performance for others to see, but done in secret for your heavenly Father to see. What Jesus is saying here is there's no need to draw attention to yourself. Instead, do what you would normally do. And in the first century, hygiene meant anointing your head and washing your face. 2,000 years later, we take a shower, we put on deodorant, and you brush your teeth. If I could add a little bit, maybe floss occasionally. If I don't say it, your dentist will. I'm going to go see the dentist on Tuesday. I'm a little nervous. It's been a year and a half. Pray for me. Interestingly enough, I also, Jill, like, she loaded up all my doctor's appointments on Tuesday. I love my wife. And uh, I've got to fast, ironically enough, on Monday for my appointment on Tuesday morning. It's a scheduled fast. But the words of Jesus, they lead us to live out the way of Jesus, don't they? To love like Jesus. And I want us to see fasting as an act of love. I want us to see that fasting is response that fosters greater love for God. It, it is an act of worship. Worship is so much more than singing right? This entire time together is an act of worship, amen? We worship through song, we've worshiped through prayer, we're worshiping through the word, we worship through communion. It is all worship. And we are called to worship with our entire being. And yet so often, I think we're, we're led to believe that worship is a spiritual act. We worship in our hearts. But when Jesus in John 4 called us to, uh, he said, those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth. He, he's not calling us to some form of dualism, that disconnects our outer physical body from our inner spiritual self. He's not doing that. In fact, I think he's doing the exact opposite. He, he's calling us to worship God with the depth of our being, with our entire being, body and soul, spiritually and physically. And, and think about it. Think about when you worship through prayer. Scripture calls us to physical postures of prayer, doesn't it? Uh, scripture talks to laying prostrate as we pray. It, it talks about kneeling as we pray. Today, we often uh, bow our head, close our eyes, and maybe do something with our hands as we pray. It is a physical act, not just a spiritual act. The same is true as, of worship through song. We stand, if you are able, as we sing. We raise our voices, we lift our hands and we raise them in the air like we just don't care, right? And if you're not careful and you look around the room, you notice people start, uh-oh, uh-oh, Holy Spirit's cutting loose today. Yeah. You, and, and then you're like, oh, somebody might see, I gotta put my hands back in my pocket. And we do, we, I think we do one of two things sometimes. We either feel nervous about cutting loose and letting the Spirit have hold of us, and so we like shove those hands in our pocket, or we do the, the lock, you know? We lock them, not going up, nope. And then, and then, get back. Or sometimes we do the exact opposite. Sometimes I think we can come in and we can raise our hands hoping that others see just how spiritual we are. 
with your tie, with your suit, or with flip-flops and ripped jeans. Both of those are, are not what he's calling for. It's not so that others will see. It's not so that others will think you are more spiritual. It is simply a natural, instinctual response as we sing of who God is, of what God has done, and what he promises to do as we sing Scripture, as we sing the gospel. And the same is true as we worship God through fasting. It is a literal hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And Jesus promised in the Beatitudes that we shall be satisfied. But what I hope you see here is that as long as you disconnect your physical body from your spiritual self in worship, whatever that act of worship is, you are always going to feel a sense of disconnect from God. Does that make sense? When you limit your worship to just being a spiritual act in your heart, you've disconnected body and soul and you have disconnected in some sense from God. Fasting what I love about fasting, it is a full embodied form of worship, responding body and soul with your entire being wholly engaged with God. That's what makes fasting, abstaining from food, different from, from abstaining from social media. This is not a physical act. This is not what God defined as fasting. It, it is meant for us to hunger and thirst in response and for more of God. It is a way that fosters greater love for God, but fasting is also a response that fosters greater love for others. Think of it. We are setting aside time when we fast from a meal, setting aside time to respond to the sin of others, actually putting in place loving our enemy and praying for those who persecute us, setting aside time for the, to pray for the suffering of, of others, for um, loneliness and illness. There's been no shortage of that in the last year to fast and pray over for poverty and injustice. John Wesley, he says that uh, the natural incentive for fasting, just a, an instinctual reason for fasting, is for those who are under deep affliction and overwhelmed with sorrow. It is natural, it is inevitable response to that sacred, grievous moment. And so we, we set aside time to pray, but we can also then set aside money for the meals that we've missed. Uh, St. Augustine, he, he asked, how many poor can be filled by the breakfast we have given this day, given up, we have this day given up? How many people could we feed skipping that drive-through to Starbucks just once a week? Fasting, what it does is it, we enter into the suffering of others. We, we experience it differently when we set aside that time to pray for them. Not just saying we'll pray, but stopping and praying, even if that means scheduling it a time to pray and fast and set aside money to serve others, to support others, whether that's through our hands and feet fund as we prepare to launch the pantry later this year or, or simply bringing a meal to someone who is in need. You know, this week we posted on our, on our church uh, Facebook group a, a family who's in need of meals over the next few weeks that we're asking people to contribute to. But all of this, you know, I was asked this week, am I going to make a call to a churchwide fast at the end of this sermon? I said no, because I think it would undo everything that I sought to do as in our time together. Instead, my prayer for us as a church, as a body, as a family, is that we would see fasting as an act of worship with our whole self, body and soul. Fasting is worship, not in hopes of a response, but as a response. 
a response to the sin and suffering that exists in our lives and in the world, a response that fosters greater love for God and greater love for others. And I pray that we would see it that way because this is not about creating some mechanical ritual of doing. That's not what the spiritual practices are about. They are, they are about being. They are about establishing a regular rhythm of being with God and of worshiping God. But know that like, we call them the spiritual practices, not the spiritual perfections, don't we? It's the spiritual practices. They take time. They take practice to develop over time, to make this a regular rhythm. And so wherever you're at today in your journey with Jesus, in your walk with Christ, I pray that you would consider your next step. And I don't know what that is for you, but I pray about you would take your next step of making fasting a more regular rhythm in your life. I'm not calling you to make it weekly, monthly, just a more regular rhythm in your life. Maybe by simply scheduling a weekly fast from a meal proactively responding to the sin in your life that you struggle with, uh, praying for that distance that you might be feeling from God, not in hopes of something, but in response to that distance, in response to that sin, fasting uh, in response to the suffering that exists in our world. And if you're like, I don't know if there's any suffering in the world, man, just pull up a newspaper, pull up Twitter, and within about 30 seconds, you're going to have no shortage of things to fast and pray over in our world. I want us to see that just as the nation of Israel fasted as God's people in response to God's promise for Messiah, the one spoken of by the prophets, the one in whom every page of the Old Testament scriptures point, we as the church come together and we fast as God's new covenant people in response to God's fulfillment of that promise in and through Jesus and in response to his promise that Christ will one day return. Amen? It is a response. But I also want us to see in Scripture that just as the disciples feasted in the presence of Jesus during his first advent, the book of Revelation says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When all of God's children will feast in the presence of Jesus upon his return in his second advent, when he will right the wrongs and restore all that is broken, when he will reign over a kingdom free of sin, free of suffering, no more grief, no more mourning. And God has invited each and every one of you here this morning to that feast. Everyone who receives that forgiveness by the blood that Jesus spilled for you on the cross, everyone who confesses their, with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart, that God raised him from the dead, will be saved, and is invited to this feast. And that's how we're going to close our time together this morning, responding to our sin, responding to the suffering in our world, not with a fast right now, but together with a feast, a feast that foreshadows that great feast yet to come, a feast that reminds us of our sin that separated us from God, a feast that reminds us of the sacrifice Jesus made to reunite us to God. And so I'm going to give us a moment here to pray silently, to respond to our sin, to repent of our sin to God in prayer, through silent prayer. And I'm going to pray over us, and then I'm going to lead us in taking those communion elements together. And so at this time, I want to invite you to bow your head in a moment of silent prayer.
Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.